Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, it's been a, a busy few days, obviously, with the uh, NCAA tournament. Um, not the best one for the SEC. Uh, only Arkansas remains. Um, can debate whether or not how a, a conference performs in the tournament is really an indi- indicator of how strong they are or not, but... Uh, you know, what were your thoughts, at least on that, before we get into to Todd Golden a little bit on, on the SEC's kind of disappointing showing? Yeah, I, I kind of disagree with the concept that it doesn't reflect on a league. Like, like again, anytime you go to a postseason tournament and there's a one-game sample, to look at that, you know, in a vacuum is, is not enough to make uh, kind of sweeping judgment. But I don't know, when you have as many teams as, like, the SEC did and uh, teams that would be favored in in a lot of those matchups. I I don't know. I it just every year it seems like there is a league that uh, gets a whole bunch of teams to the tournament, and then they all seem to do poorly. I I don't know. I just think when you've got that much of a sample size, like it kind of says something. It's just like like for example. I mean, I th- this isn't the exact same thing, but if you f- there there's the SEC Big Twelve Challenge every year. It's like the team that wins more games. Like usually, like people aren't like, well, it doesn't really say anything about the conference. It's like people are like, kind of like, okay, yeah, like. It doesn't say everything, but it says something. And I kind of feel the same way about the NCAA tournament when a whole bunch of teams from the same league go down in um, some fashions that are kind of embarrassing in some of the cases. So, uh, I, I, you know what? I, I definitely think the, the SEC is a lot better than they showed. But if people want to look at it and say, hey, this probably means the SEC wasn't as good as we thought, I think that's totally fair. And I thought the SEC was awesome. And I do think that uh, the way that they performed has changed my perception a little bit. Yeah, I thought the SEC was a great league, and I was very surprised that they only got one team into the second weekend. I'm with you. I think, um, like I said, you can debate what it actually means about the strength of the league, but I definitely think there's something to it. And and for the SEC to only go four and five, um, you know, I think stunned a lot of people. Uh, and obviously Kentucky losing to St. Peter's, um, you know, I think if they played – 10 times Kentucky would win nine, but the rest of these games, you know, I wasn't really like any of these other teams that, that were, that, that lost uh, were particularly close. I guess the Tennessee Michigan game was fairly close, Um, but certainly Iowa state was in control against LSU the whole game. Um, Obviously Arkansas survived both Vermont and New Mexico state, but uh, Gonzaga will be a whole different, uh, test for for the Hogs. Um, Auburn did never led against Miami, which I thought was amazing. Um, wire to wire for the Canes, uh, and then despite having really no big whatsoever, it just didn't matter. Um, you know, and I think that was one where a lot of our fears about Auburn were kind of confirmed, right? That they weren't great in half court offense, and if they couldn't turn you over you know, what was going to happen if Jabari Smith had a bad night. And that's what happened there. I still think too, you look at some of these home environments for uh, several of the SEC teams and just the kind of style of play that a lot of these teams utilize, like Auburn particularly, who just seems to defend really hard. And then they go on these ridiculous runs that are kind of 
fueled by their home crowd a lot of the time. They are one of the teams that was a lot better at home than than on the road. And Alabama plays that kind of style too, like where they're they're very aggressive. They rely on coming out on the positive side of a whole lot of runs. And uh, I, I just wonder too if like some of these SEC teams that are pretty emotionally charged that play pretty high variance styles of basketball, shooting a lot of threes, and um, you know allowing a lot of threes. Uh, also these sec teams that really rely a lot on transition baskets where it just kind of always seems like in whatever level of basketball from the nba down to high school basketball uh when it comes to postseason play the the game just naturally slows down and, and teams that are reliant on playing in transition uh that just uh that just doesn't seem to work and that's uh that's one of the things i know we've talked about so long on the show for when people wanted the Gators to be the fastest team in the country. And Mike White kind of made it sound like you want to be the fastest team in the country. One of the things we cautioned was, Hey, just so you know, if you play really fast, like that usually doesn't win you postseason games uh, because the game is going to slow down. Of course, we never actually had that problem of uh, uh, the Gators playing that fast and what are they going to do when the game slows down? Um, but it was something we have talked about on the program. So I, I do think there's some style stylistic things that can be taken from this much. Like I think there's some stylistic things to be taken from the fact that there's been several big 10 years in a row where the big 10 hasn't been great and i think that their style of kind of plotting um play through the post basketball uh with two bigs on the floor uh how maybe that's not set up to to win at the highest level i mean again that's something that i write about all the time and whenever it came to or comes to any decision that that florida makes with lineups who's on the roster how they play like so what, the thing i always do is like and people know this, you read my stuff or listen to the podcast. Uh, it's always like what wins, what is shown to win at the highest level of basketball. And uh, that's why I do think, you know, the SEC flaming out should be something that, uh, um, you know, inquiring minds should definitely look into. I almost forgot to unmute myself there. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, it's interesting. Um, certainly, like I said, you know, I think Auburn's weaknesses were exposed a little bit by a veteran team with great guards. The NCAA tournament is very much about matchups as well. Um, I'm not sure a USC team that was averaging 15 turnovers a game in their last 10 has as much success against Auburn, though I think your point's very well taken that uh, Auburn also creates a lot of turnovers in its home environment, was never a great team away from home. Um, and so that hurt them um, a little bit too. Uh, one thing I do wonder, Eric, is uh, your if you have any kind of additional thoughts on Alabama. And they finished 19 and 14. Um, some similarities sort of to Mike White's third year. The Gators a little more successful from a record standpoint. Uh, the Gators led the country in quad one wins. Mike White's third year in Florida. Alabama had a lot of quad one wins. That's why they ended up with a sixth seed. Um, but they weren't particularly competitive. Um, in their first round game, they finished 19 and 14. And I think the number that sticks out to me is with Herb Jones um, gone and with Josh Primo gone, they finished 93rd in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency, which I guess begs my question of can NATO play the way he played at Buffalo in the SEC from a sustainable standpoint? I guess maybe do we need to just see what happens a year four before we say yes or no? Well, that's one thing for sure is like at Buffalo, they played extremely fast. Of course, they tried to do that a little bit um, early in uh, his time at Alabama. I mean, still early in, in this season, but um, 
again, it's it's one of those things that like when I look at what betrayed them, it really was their their half court offense. I mean, again, I do wonder if there's some other kind of problems. Like there was a report that they had uh, their optional shoot around the day before, you know, quote unquote optional, and uh, Javon Quinterly was the only player to show up. And uh, some Alabama media were talking about, you know, there's a lot of these guys were just, you know, not really care, not not really there to play, not really too concerned about winning and moving on. I do think they had some roster construction issues as well. Like one of the things that I think is unfortunate for Alabama fans and the SEC on the whole is a player that I think is really good is Noah Gurley for the the Furman transfer. Um, who was a player that Florida had reached out to. And uh, I think he's awesome, but I didn't think he was a fit for what Alabama is doing at all. And I guess ultimately we see that because uh, he wasn't on the floor in a lot of big moments. And I also think that they they kind of maybe put too many eggs in the basket of Betty Acko, five-star freshman. I didn't think that he was ready. And I think that for that style, they do need that you know, size at the five to catch lobs and put pressure on the rim with rolls and, and pushing and transition. So I, I think just kind of looking up and down the roster, it just was some pieces that didn't particularly work. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a situation where, uh, the talent that they had, like Noah Gurley, who I think in a vacuum is really talented. Um, but for the role, like, again, they're looking for someone who can, um, catch and drive in a straight line or, or set screens and roll to the hoop. And he's someone who needs to catch it in the mid post and survey the defense and get someone cutting off a split cut. So, so he just really didn't seem to fit what they were doing. So I think that, uh, I think there was, a, there was, there was several problems there. Some were maybe in the locker room, but I, I do just think it was like a situation where the talent didn't totally fit. Um, I can see why people have can kind of concerns with, with Nate Oates, but I still think he's able to get, um, well, before this year really showed that he was able to get players that fit his system. Exactly. He went away from that a little bit this year. Um, but I still think, you know, generally he's got uh, uh, generally he's shown some, uh, some of the schematic stuff that, that I think will work. Um, he's been the other, like, again, just the, the guy who I've seen go deepest into the dribble drive playbook of, of really anyone in the country um, and had shown that he has, you know, some pretty good success against it with Florida, but I don't know. I'm not quite ready to sound the alarms for Nate Oates in Alabama in the same way that uh, some other people are. I think that's very fair. Uh, so like I said, I, th- I kind of think year four will be interesting for him. Um, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily sustainable to play that fast a pace, but as you pointed out uh, quite well, um, you know, I think certainly there's, there's merit to the point that, that he, uh, he may have just had some roster construction issues this year and we'll see what he does with the transfer portal. They obviously have an, uh, an amazing recruiting class coming in. So, um, you know, should be able to get a lot out of his talent next season. And obviously still, as we mentioned on the last podcast, one of those guys that's uh, kind of on the cutting edge of, of analytically driven um, coaching and program building in college basketball, which is one reason that I think a lot of people have, uh, since we even did our last podcast, I think there's kind of a, a tidal wave of, of uh, I don't know if it's a tidal wave yet, but certainly some growing enthusiasm around the Todd Golden hire, Eric. Yeah, there's a couple of people that, that messaged me, said that they were listening to the podcast for the first time. So if that's you and you're listening to this podcast for the, the second time, uh, shout out to you and shout out to you if you are a first time listener. You're that That's great. Happy to have you along. And uh, shout out to all the people who have listened to us for a very long time, which 
now seems like in the, the life of this podcast has been a very long time. So shout out to the OGs, you know, shout out to Tyler Crenshaw, who just got married. Um, shout out to the repairman. Shout out to, to Jake Winderman. Um, got, yes. got all the shout outs today. <laughs> um, Jay, but Malik will get one later, I, I, I think, actually. But it is it is good to have uh, people excited about the hire, for sure. I don't know if we've had um, as, as much of a surge of new listeners in the last little while. And, uh, you know, dare I say, Neil, I think this podcast has maybe become something that was kind of exclusively for the very, very hardcore fans. I don't know how many casuals were like, settling in to listen to us talk about Stony Brook for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, there was definitely like, no doubt. there's, there's definitely an element of the podcast that was almost like meme level at some point where it's like, how long can we talk about games that like no one else in the Florida space is, is caring about. It was almost like performance art at, at some points during the, the darkest times of the season. But uh, anyways, that's <laughs> to say there's actual enthusiasm about the Todd golden hire. And I think there's also a large amount of intrigue, like there's people who are interested in the style of play, interested to, to what he's going to bring um, people that just really. And I think a lot of it, too, is like people really wanted just something, something different with Florida basketball. And that's just one of the things I think people realize right away. Um, they're definitely getting different, different philosophy, different style of play, just different in a, in a whole lot of ways. And I think that's something that people are people are excited for. Yeah, and it will be different. And as I mentioned um, on the last show, certainly on the analytical edge of things, I saw the really good article by G. Allen Taylor at The Athletic on the hire. I recommend that to people if if they have a subscription to The Athletic. If you don't, maybe get somebody to, to gift you the article uh, to read. But I think uh, a really good piece. It was interesting that that there was one SEC assistant that was quoted that was like kind of like, well, Nate Oates is really the only super analytically driven guy in the SEC. I'm not sure I totally agree with that just because I know AM has like multiple support staff people that that are doing that as does Tennessee. Um I'm not certain how much Rick Barnes uh you know I mean I don't want to make assumptions about the guy because he's 60. I'm just saying like I don't know how much Rick Barnes is you know doing that necessarily but they do have staff that handle that at Tennessee. So I still think it's kind of Florida joining those two schools. Um, in that particular area. Um, one thing that, that people were messaging me about, and I thought maybe we could get Eric to talk about a little bit is I know that they are intending to hire an offensive coordinator. He's had one. He had one at San Francisco who was named the head coach at San Francisco to replace him. Um, and I think we mentioned on the last show that as data driven as he is, is, and as good as the offense, Eric uh, tweeted out in a thread, a great thread was, uh, Golden's background is is really as a defensive coordinator. Yeah, I even heard like some people describe him as hands off on the offensive end, which uh, I, I think just shows the the trust he had in, in Gerlofsson, who's now the head coach at San Francisco. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to see what he accomplishes, and he's probably going to be the next Kyle Smith, Todd Golden, and then him to to go go on to get a better job. So I, I do think it's interesting because like I, I went and watched a whole bunch of San Francisco and and posted those clips on Twitter. And obviously I was like wanting to share with people what's the offense like, because I think that was probably a, a lot of people's biggest frustration with Mike White. They're most interested at what Todd Golden's going to bring. And I was doing this all with the kind of full knowledge that like, I don't really know if this is what Florida is going to run. Uh, because again, he has been, Golden's been so open about the fact that he's got an offensive coordinator. And I think there's a lot of staffs on the country who have an offensive coordinator, but the head coaches, their, their egos are too big to, 
kind of openly say that someone else is the offensive coordinator. These head coaches want to say they have their fingerprints on everything. So I, I, first of all, just think it's really cool. And like, modern for for golden to be like yeah this is my offensive coordinator he handles that side of the ball uh so we'll see who who florida gets um but but i've got to say too like just looking at what san francisco did run it's like you can draw a line pretty easily to how it would work at florida like there's no problem with what he ran like if he did run the exact same stuff that that was ran at, at san francisco um i'd be really happy with it i mean you did see some of the five out stuff that florida ran but just way better like again five out being the same in, as, as florida just in the pure standpoint of like five out I, I, other than that it was not the same thing at all so um to see them coming off some of those 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 zoom actions those pin downs into dribble handoffs to see um them having a lot lower split cuts something i was always advocating for for florida when they went to their split cuts lower split cuts that really put pressure with the cuts um so they did that so and then of course just seeing like all these like very very creative actions to get shooters free uh something i was you know been, we've been advocating since freshman noah lock years so to see that showed a bunch of creativity. So we'll, we'll see exactly what kind of does transition, but it's one of those things too, where it's like, I don't need to know exactly what Todd Golden's is going to run because you just know, whatever it is, it's going to be on the modern edge of, of basketball. And not that it, we're like expecting, Oh, it's got to be super innovative or something like that. But like, yeah, it's, it's, it's gotta make sense. Like, like I know it's going to be hunting the shots that you want in basketball, which is not what was the case in the last couple regimes like we've had several guys that we've you know really questioned their shot selection and the shots that the offense was gearing those players towards taking uh we had you know issues with that well we know what todd golden thinks about shot selection we know the shots he's going to be looking for and we know that he the way he uses analytics he's going to look for what are each of the players best skills and how do we get those players into those positions um and utilizing some of those numbers so uh again like i i would if you're listening to this and haven't looked i think it'd be very interesting for you to you know go to my twitter and look at uh, the clips i posted look at a little bit of their offense um and then i posted some pick and roll defense at the end but but um, yeah, I, I I just think like I, I I'm not as concerned as with some other like you know co- w- what coaching transitions would be just because like I, I know the heart of what Todd Golden is getting to offensively and I know that there's multiple styles that will like get him to where he wants to go uh, and that just makes it very different from a coach who's like you can watch them play and they're like you know I played you know this structure and then it's like well let's hope they can get some good shots out of it um, Todd Golden thinks of offense in a way that you know I, I would too where it's like find the shots that you want to take and then reverse engineer from there so um, we'll, we'll see if they run the kind of stuff they did at San Francisco it would totally work and be great but we cannot be sure until they get uh, an offensive coordinator yeah, and you would imagine that those conversations are probably already happening. I, I haven't heard anything. Um, we don't ever really shy away from telling people when we have heard stuff. I have heard nothing. Um, and I think that makes sense considering the introductory press conferences and even until Wednesday. Um, you know, and so usually the way these things work is you kind of have to first talk to the signed recruits, see who wants out of their LOI, what I will say is that there have been a couple of coaching changes where some people have asked for their release. Um, at present, nobody from Florida has asked for a release. Uh, that's good. Um, and then you want to work on the guys that are coming back. So with Florida, that's kind of a muddle picture because of all the COVID years uh, that, that people could potentially use. Um, Florida's actual scholarship number is a little bit murky. I don't think it'll stay that way for too long. Again, 
Uh, I think on the last podcast, Eric, I mentioned the portal wars and all that stuff starts so soon. I mean, we've already seen a couple high profile names uh, enter the portal um, that would have one year of eligibility remaining. So it's already begun even with the sweet 16 yet to be played. Yeah, I well, I won't say the number because I'm sure it'll change by the time that, that people are listening to this. But, you know, there are many hundreds of players in the transfer portal <laughs> as we speak. So you can, again, go into what Neil was saying, like about how some teams want to make their hires as, as quickly as possible. I'll also point out, like, I, like, I'm not saying that, oh, if the Gators were to have players transfer out, it would have already happened. But because uh, that's definitely not true. We saw Andrew Nemhart take quite some time, put his name in the portal. Uh, Noah Locke wasn't immediate. Omar Payne wasn't immediate. So again, it's 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 not saying that at all. However, there are plenty of players in the country who less than 12 hours after their team finished their final game, were in the transfer portal. So, uh, and, and again, I, a lot of those players will return to the school that they're currently at. It's just, they, they want to get their name in the portal so that they can check their options. So I would also just, you know, remind fans or remind people listening to this or who have friends that are going to freak out if they do see a player from the Gators with their name in the transfer portal, not to freak out. They, when you, commit to a certain coach and that coach is gone. It makes sense that you're going to go see what other options would be out there. And maybe, maybe Florida is still best, but I, I think it's great that these kids can take the opportunity to see what options are, are out there. So I just hope that people don't freak out immediately um, when they see, or if, or when, if they see, <laughs> see some names in the portal, um, those guys still might be coming back. I, I mean, it's a very, very tough um, decision, especially for, um, some of the guys that, that really did prove that they could play, um, they they'll have they would have opportunities all over the country, and they've got to you know weigh that versus uh, what they think they continue can continue to have at Florida. So uh, that will be pretty interesting. I would not feel very confident making really guesses on on anyone leaving right now. Um, I, I know there's there some of these these players are at Florida because because they love Florida. Um, it's not because exclusively they really love the the old head coach um they certainly did love that coach but it's also they they also love the institution so um i don't think that they're uh, that anyone is like uh, really jumping to leave of course if they were they, they'd already be in the portal but they're not so uh we'll see it's definitely something to watch but um the fact of the matter too is that right now like like potentially by the time you you hear this there could be over a thousand players in the portal and uh that number could very well get to two thousand because there was close to that last year in the portal and there's probably going to be more this year so um Todd Golden will be uh, will be busy. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and I'm not as optimistic or, or hopeful as you that people won't freak out. I imagine that if if uh, Kowasi Reeves or Niles Lane enter the portal, uh, panic will ensue, and and Todd Golden will be losing important players and this and that, and really it could just be a young man um, entering the portal and trying to figure out what the best spot is for him and what its best destination is. I will say that I think some of the concerns about Wacy leaving for say a rival school in the Southeastern conference um, are a little bit uh, overblown. Um, obviously I'm sure. Uh, and I know the Reeves family has immense respect for Mike White uh, in terms of how he offered uh, Wacy his first scholarship and, they're very grateful um, for that, but I don't think that necessarily means they committed to just a head coach. So, um, you know, that that's what I'll, 
I'll say about that. It will be well, interesting. Well, one see. one thing oh, I just want to jump in with 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 especially Kwesi. Um Well, first of all, yeah, I, I I will he will not be going home to to Georgia um, or following my quiet. I I also just want to point out that Kwesi is someone who has always done like I, I don't want to say a stereotype. Let or allow me to stereotype. Done things the right way. Um, Niles Lane, the same thing. So if these if these players want to weigh their options, which I think anyone you know reasonably would do, like right now, it's like other coaches that might be interested are going to try to go through their AAU coach. Um, if they want to do things the you know the right way and have like legal contact with other schools, they'll put their name in the portal. So again, I just that that's the other thing too. Like you said, Neil, people will freak out no matter how much we position. But I just would also think that like knowing the character of these guys where they're not looking to go through back channels, they're looking to do things, you know, the, the, the correct way. Um, you know, that would be like, if you have any inkling that you might want to talk to a coach at another program, um, it's put your name in the portal and, and have it done kind of properly. So, so again, I, I just not, again, not suggesting, I think that's going to happen, but it also just wouldn't surprise me because if they have any interest whatsoever in maybe seeing their other options, um, the, the best way and the, the, you know, proper way would be to go in the portal i just want to kind of point that out but sorry to interrupt you neil no no that makes sense um and that's a that's a good thing to point out um you know pretty helpful there uh in terms of staff um you know i do i don't know if i mentioned in the last show i know i sent a tweet out i think it would be wise to retain eric pastrana i think that there's a lot of merit to recruiting florida first and second um some people push back on that concept a little bit on uh, Twitter. And this is one where I just want to point out that the data kind of supports my position, um, as does kind of history. Uh, Florida largely. So if you're of the camp that believes Florida became a really good basketball program because of Billy Donovan, and that's fine. And you can have that opinion. Um, I think that there's a lot of merit to that. Uh, certainly sustainable success was not achieved until the Donovan era, um, although there had been pockets of it. Um, much like sustainable success in football was not achieved until the Steve Spurrier era, although there had been pockets of it. Um, so I think when you look at how Billy Donovan built the program, uh, it really all started with recruiting Miami and getting a great player from Jacksonville uh, when there was available, when a great player from Jacksonville was available to get. Um, and that was sort of Florida's formula. Yes, Billy Donovan recruited New York very well, of course, uh, you know, he had a rapport with a lot of high school coaches up there. He's from there, did well in living rooms there. Um, and then, you know, he would pluck players from all over, including David Lee and Brad Beal from St. Louis, Missouri. So it wasn't like he isolated himself or Mike Miller from Mitchell, South Dakota. Uh, so, you know, he, he would get players from all over the place. But the core that became um, sort of the reason that Florida was started winning SEC championships was – Florida players, Justin Hamilton, uh, Major Parker was from Fort Lauderdale, um, Brent Wright from Miami, Udonis Haslam from Miami, uh, and so on. Eddie Shannon was a player he inherited but was from West Palm Beach and kept him in the fold. Uh, so these are all uh, – Greg Stolt was a Florida guy. So these are all guys that they managed to kind of keep on campus – and win with. And then I would note that that formula never really stopped being something that was important to Billy Donovan. Um, although all of the O4s came from out of state, except for Torian Green, uh, I would note that the 2014 starting five 
You had uh, Will You Get, who was from France, but you had Pat Young, who was from Jacksonville. You had Scotty Wilbekin, who was a, a Gainesville kid. You had uh, Casey Prather, who was a Florida kid. Um, and so, you know, you kind of got uh, – Casey Prather was from Tennessee, I'm sorry. But the point being that Florida had multiple starters – that were Florida people. So I think that's a great way to build a program. And historically it's worked at Florida. It's also worked at Florida state. Leonard Hamilton has signed the best recruits from the state of Florida over and over again um, in building that program over the last 10 years. It's part of the reason that until this season, they had one of the longest uh, NCAA tournament streaks in the country. Uh, and until this season, they had one more home games than anyone in the last decade in college basketball, which is, Super impressive when you consider that, like, includes Gonzaga and teams that just, you know, you wouldn't, other than Kansas. Uh, so they were second, I'm sorry, behind Kansas. So it goes Kansas, FSU, Gonzaga in terms of home wins in the last 10 years. Like coming into this season, uh, FSU has fallen behind some others after losing a bunch of home games this year. But they did that with Florida kids that like to play in their backyard, Eric. So I think retaining Eric Pastrana, who is one of the best recruiters of the state of Florida in the country, um, and recruited the state at Oklahoma state too, uh, by the way, um, you know, I think would be a, a pretty sharp move. Uh, I don't have, um, the audacity to say I know best in terms of what, what Todd golden would want on his staff for an offensive coordinator or his other assistant. Um, hopefully Florida will be expanding their support staff, Eric, but I do think there's merit in the idea of keeping coach Pastrana. Um, so first of all, too, with, with Pastrana, I mean, I, I always find it very difficult to talk about assistance because it's tough to quantify exactly what they do. Um, I will say by by all accounts from Pastrana talking about him, himself and his own journey as a coach and what he's into, like he's a defensive guy. So I don't see him as the offensive coordinator. Um, but, you know, in terms of retaining him, like as a recruiter, like, you know, absolutely. And, and to still be a, a defensive guy for sure. I definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I don't know, like for, for a little while, like I kind of thought that the uh, you know, having to keep kids in, in state was, was a little bit overrated, a little bit of like a football concept brought over to basketball, but at the same time, like looking at the transition that's about to take place, like it's going to be tough at times um, for Todd Golden to recruit. Like I, I know talking to some coaches at, good programs in the sec like you go to oak hill and you're watching a kid you think you can get and then john calipari walks in and the head coach stops practice to go take a picture with him you know pretty quick you're not you, you know you're not getting that guy um that happens all the time in the sec there's some of those guys where it's like you you walk into these gyms you might think you've got an edge on a guy and and uh you know in 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 comes well i was, I was about to say roy williams i'm no longer but you know in comes tony bennett and the coaches want to take a picture with him and you know, the, the thing is, there's still going to be a little bit of an uphill battle, especially in the South for people to, you know, understand who, who Todd Golden is. I had a high school coach of a very well-known high school in, in the Southeast who's produced a whole lot of players, um, follows me on Twitter. I've never talked to him before in my life, never, never DM'd him or anything. He sends a message with a John Rothstein um, tweet that announced Todd Golden, and he says, who, who is Todd Golden? And he asked me and, and I kind of thought he was joking. I found out he was genuinely serious. And, and when he heard who he was, he was just like, Oh, that's, that's cool. I'm sure I'll see him around looking forward to meeting him. But his first thought was, you know, he did not, he did not know who that was. So Todd Golden is probably going to go into this person's gym 
And other than the Gator logo, he might not recognize, you know, who Todd Golden is. And that's, I'm not trying to be rude, not trying to like, again, I will reiterate, I'm very happy with the Todd Golden hire. Just the fact of the matter is when you're recruiting some of these places in the Southeast that have had strong footholds with particular coaches, like there will be a little bit of an uphill battle and keeping an Eric Pastrana is going to be a huge part of the Gators, you know, if the Gators were to do that, it would be a big, it would be a big part of kind of maintaining some of the relationships, um, maintaining the current relevancy Florida has at some of these programs. And, um, and then, you know, Todd Golden's going to win some games and, and compete at the top of the sec. And then suddenly, you know, hopefully it's, you know, he's the guy who some of these coaches want to take pictures with. Um, but right off the bat here, uh, when it comes to, you know, building their recruiting footprint, it just, you know, makes so much sense to me. I, I think Pastrana is going to have all kinds of leverage. I think he should use it. I think he should get paid what he's worth. And uh, the Gators should keep him around for at least one more year. Um, and then, you know, of course, we'll we'll see what Pastrana wants. We'll see what Todd Golden wants. We'll see if um, what athletic directors want, if, if they want Pastrana to take over a head job somewhere. But uh, that's just kind of my view. And uh, I just, I, I think it would be money well spent to give a little bit of a pay bump uh, to Pastrana and keep him around if he's, uh, if he's at all willing. Yeah, and I will say that I got the uh, the number of likes I got on a tweet saying he should be retained um, was a lot. But what was interesting about it was how many of them were from like Florida high school coaches, uh, to Eric's point. Um, I mean, just from all over the place, too. And like these were like good programs, like Dr. Phillips head coach or, you know, like Cardinal Gibbons. Uh, head coach, like just places where, where university school, um, which has produced some pretty nice talent uh, recently. Um, although those guys have gone to Duke and FSU, you know, it's still pretty interesting that that's like a tweet that their like head coach would like. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, I do think that there's certainly merit to that. And, and um, you know, because Todd Golden knows the lay of the land in SEC recruiting um, and, you know, certainly more than people were giving him credit for when they were knee-jerk reacting to the name and the hire. Um, but I think when when you talk about Florida recruiting, it's a little bit different, and you want to be able to go head-to-head with with the Seminoles, obviously in state. You want to be able to go head-to-head with Miami, who with Larry Nega signing the the extension and getting to the Sweet Sixteen, I'm sure um, they'll at least have some juice. Uh, back in Miami's recruiting pitches next year. I don't necessarily think all those things, you don't necessarily get a bounce. Um, Billy Donovan used to joke about that and say, you know, yeah, yeah, I didn't land uh, three straight top two classes when I won two national championships in a row uh, for some reason. Um, But, um, you know, not in this sport, unfortunately. In college football, probably you're going to be, in those top three when, when you're winning that, that big, but not in this sport, there's too many extracurriculars going on, but Eric Pastrana has a lot of really good relationships. And I think that that would be smart in terms of offensive coordinators. Um, definitely. Uh, I think Malik Grady sent something to us. Shout out to Malik for sending us uh, something this morning. That was like an article Eric wrote last year about offensive coordinators. And it is kind of funny that like some of those candidates would, would probably be still good fits, Eric. Yeah, well, I mean, some of them were, were West Coast guys for for sure. Um, you know, lo- looking at uh, from South Dakota or South Dakota, uh, San Diego State and 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 Sanford. Um, so maybe there's some connections there. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I, I again, it's one of those things when it comes to assistant coach hires. It's just so 
so tough to know. And like, it would be very, like what I would really love is if everyone was like San Francisco and said, this is our offensive coordinator, um, Chris Gerlofsson. Like it would be much easier if, if, uh, if it was laid out that way, that coaches were far more open about who their offensive coordinator was. And we could more easily draw a line to like, Hey, look, like, let's look at how good this team was offensively or, Hey, this is how, what they run. Um, it'd be easy, but it becomes a little, a little bit tougher. So I, I know I'm, no, Malik is is on the job when it comes to uh, finding potential offensive coordinator hires. Uh, makes sense <laughs> that a couple of the guys that that um that we were uh, hearing, you know, looking at slash hearing the names of with uh, last last summer, um, happen to be guys that that are West Coast guys. So maybe there's a connection there. Um, but um, you know, Golden's also someone who is uh, pretty involved with a lot of different coaching circles. Um, does a lot of clinics. Um, is that a lot of events? Um, I'm sure he knows a lot of guys in, in a lot of parts of the country and it could be, uh, could be just what anyone. And I just really don't have much of a feel truthfully right now for, for who that could be. Um, I'd love for, I'd love for them to just, you know, make that higher so I could get into some more film of another team. But, uh, uh, right now, you know what, Neil, I don't, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have much. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, I will say when we talk Todd Golden, we're talking about a coach who was in the top 10, um, in the athletics, uh, 40 under 40 rising stars in college basketball. And I will say not only was he like in the top 10, but the only coaches that were ahead of him were Dana Ford at Missouri state, uh, Kim English at George Mason and Mike Boynton at Oklahoma state. So he was the fourth coach listed in the 40 under 40. And now Mike Boynton got absolutely bamboozled by the NCAA as did like every player on Oklahoma state's team. And what happened to their program is why the NCAA is horrible and like makes no sense. Um, but I will say that, you know, of those four coaches, Golden clearly had the best year. Uh, I, I can't emphasize enough how ridiculous it is to finish 20th in Ken Palm and 22nd in the net at San Francisco. Uh, that's very, very difficult to do. And it leads me to kind of the next point I wanted to make, because in, in the rest of the top 10, it was like a referee, uh, the dudes from three man weave, you know, like all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Uh, no Eric Fawcett for some reason, which is nonsense, but um, maybe next year. Uh, <laughs> let, let's talk about like the fact that, Holy cow, did I just totally lose my train of thought making a joke about, about Eric Fawcett? No, scheduling, scheduling. Scheduling. Um, that's what I wanted to get into. So I'm optimistic, and, and this was something that was kind of bearing on me. Like I was like, what three pieces of advice would random guy me from Florida Basketball Hour give to Todd Golden um, as he begins year one of the golden era? So number one was retain Eric Pastrana. My second piece of advice would be do not replicate the Mike White style of scheduling. You don't have to go out and just kill yourself um, every year. And I know this year it backfired a little bit oddly, but that wasn't on purpose. Like if you looked at Florida's schedule before the season, the intent was for it to be brutally difficult and it just so happened that a couple teams that are always very good and that started the season in the top 20, mind you, ended up being not very good. Florida only went one and one against them anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, there are ways the way that the net works 
um, at least right now, maybe they'll adjust it to schedule really smart and improve your net. San Francisco did that. And I think Florida would be wise to follow that formula early in the golden era. Um, you know, who's really good at it. It was LSU under Will Wade, uh, marvelous scheduling team. Um, and then I think uh, Alabama, although they, this year they played pretty much everybody, but the first two years under NATO, it's very good at it. Arkansas is very good at it. Um, so I'd like to see Florida kind of adopt that approach where it's more mid-major opponents, but teams that aren't going to hurt your net um, and that actually end up helping your net because they kind of stay in that quad two range. And then you pick your spots with your quad one opponents. Yeah, San Francisco's schedule last year was absolutely brilliant. And I think this is something that speaks to uh, just exactly – like, again, I I don't think that they, like, lucked into the schedule. I'm fairly certain it was some very intelligent coaches who are analytically inclined um, who went to say, hey, can we predict um, with, you know, some level of accuracy the, the net ratings of the teams we want to play? And can we get those teams that are in that, like, 70 to 100 range, play a bunch of them on a neutral floor and turn them into quad one games? So, like, you see this year at San Francisco – they played Davidson, like I guess it was semi-home, but um, uh, whatever, call it neutral. Um, they played UAB and Towson on neutral on neutral floor, so th- that turned into two like very very good wins for them. Um, they played Grand Canyon on the road and lost that game, but playing Grand Canyon on the road there um, was looking like a quadrant run for much of the season. Like you just like up and down, like it's all teams like like that's who that's who the Gators should be playing is like, can you get some of these like, you know, UAB grand Canyon, like Fresno state. Um, I, I just think that they schedule like, they're not going to play as many road and, and neutrals as San Francisco did. Um, I would, I'd, I'd assume. Um, but again, it just shows that like, you could tell that they were very tactically hunting quadrant one games were that that would surprise people that they were quadrant one games um and again it's just one of those things that again to me just shows like the brilliance of of todd golden and his staff and uh it just it's now with the resources of of florida when it comes to scheduling i i'm pretty sure it's going to be the same thing and you won't see the gators either killing themselves and then playing teams that are going to be 320th in the net. Um, it's going to be like, Hey, let's get it. You know, a team that's 160th in the net are going to be 160th and, and play them at home. So it's not going to, you know, tank the numbers or be useless. Like, like, again, this is, this is just another thing where I would be very interested at what kind of the thought process of scheduling was with Florida. And again, I don't, I don't think Florida scheduled badly or, you know, certainly not awfully. I just thought they scheduled, normally like as if it was 2012 and it's not it's 2022 and there's a net system that you can kind of game and if you're not using it to your advantage uh, um and you're a bubble team for a bunch of years in a row those are the things that keep you on the wrong side of the bubble so uh it's just I, i can just see how tactically san francisco attacked their schedule and going into next year which could be a little bit of a Rough year for the Gators. We'll see what happens with talent, but I think they'd love to be, you know, a bubble team and hopefully find themselves on the right side of the bubble. And the way that you do that is having a schedule that is, you know, conducive and that actually allows you to put up some quadrant one victories, which the Gators, uh, you know, had a big time struggle doing. Yeah. I mean, when they, so, I mean, Davidson gets, as you mentioned, I said Davidson, San Francisco beats Davidson. Uh, they beat Towson, they beat UAB. Like these are all teams that uh, they beat UNLV. These are all teams you wouldn't, they beat Arizona state. Those are all teams that maybe save Arizona state. You wouldn't even expect to necessarily be in like the top 100, 
And they all were, they were all either in the top, maybe Davidson, but they were all in the top 75. Um, and a couple of those wins, as Eric pointed out, end up being quad one wins, including their win at Arizona state was a quad one win for a while before it wasn't. Um, but you know, the point being, it was scheduled with the intent knowing, you know, at worst, this is a quad two win for us. Uh, and you know, at worst it's a quad two loss because we played them in their building. Um, you know, I, I think Florida scheduled like Florida 2012, not like SEC 2012, because you'll remember that Greg Sankey came out and basically yelled at everyone in the SEC except for Florida and Kentucky and said, please go play people because um, this is getting ridiculous. Like we don't have the resumes to get in the tournament and like Billy and John Calipari are playing everybody. But uh, and Mike White, uh, you know, always played people. That's how, uh, as I've mentioned, three thousand nine hundred and ten times. His third team had more quad one wins than anybody because that Florida team played everybody, um, you know, that they, unfortunately to, for them, they, they lost a home game, a bye game to Loyola Chicago who ended up in the final four. And then three days later went up to New York and beat Cincinnati um, on a Chris Chioza isolation play. That was the ugliest game winning possession in the history of college basketball. Um, but guess what? Turns out, you know, it was quad two and quad one in those games <laughs> and the quad two team went to the final four. So Florida always scheduled. I just felt like sometimes they were too uh, brutal. Like they didn't hunt strategic games. Like Eric said, uh, where you're more than likely going to win. Um, there is less of a risk of losing and you're still getting the benefit of that quad two designation or that quad one designation. And I think Florida needs to be more careful and selective in how they schedule and Todd Golden uh, certainly does uh, schedule in that manner. So that would be my second piece of advice. And my third piece of advice is um, that you don't necessarily have to, you're not going to have to sell the rowdy reptiles on anything. I think that there's this perception that there's apathy in the program at the end of the Mike White era. And I think to Eric's point, uh, yes, there is, because I can tell you, from an Eric Fawcett, and I can speak for both of us because we've talked about this off the air. Um, this was the hardest season to do these shows constantly because it was difficult to uh, enjoy this season. It was difficult to enjoy watching this team with all the different weaknesses and flaws and things that we thought, you know, they could fix. And um, it wasn't that they didn't play hard or anything like that, uh, or that they didn't represent the university well or anything like that. It just, it's difficult when you're 20 and 14 and you're on the wrong side of the bubble and you've been down that road before. I do think Todd Golden needs to spend time um, in this off season, uh, kind of taking the Billy Napier approach of, of not just winning over the alumni base, but making himself known throughout the state and try to energize uh, the program. Again, the students, the rowdies are going to come man. they were loud all year. They were loud at the Alabama game. They were loud at the Arkansas game. They were loud at the Kentucky game. They were loud at the Auburn game. Um, they're going to be loud. Uh, they're going to do their job. They were loud at the Iona game. So I don't worry about the student passion for the sport um, at all, but I do think you have to get people to be interested. And I think, you know, the shine of a new coach is going to help some. Uh, there are some people who just really wanted a change and maybe they'll come back, but also getting out there and just shaking a lot of hands and kissing babies I think is, is on the Todd golden agenda. Um, so that would be a piece of advice three. He probably doesn't even need that piece of advice. I'm sure he knows it, 
But like if I were him, I'd be like out set, you know, down in Miami talking to the Miami Gator Club. And then I'd be like, hey, uh, you know, the Warriors came to my practices in San Francisco because our practices were innovative and fun. Um, you know, maybe we can get Udonis and Spo up to a practice or something like that. You know, just things that, that bring a little juice, bring a little energy that you can put on social media and say, hey, look at look at how this thing is trending. You know, who's great at that is Arkansas. Um, and so I would kind of point at the way that Muss has created some of that energy. I actually think Tennessee is quite good at it. Um, so, you know, I think those are places where I might look. But a lot of that is just get out, learn the lay of the land, because it's nice. It's one thing to know the lay of the land in the SEC, Eric. It's another thing to to be at the flagship university in Florida. Yeah, that's one of the things that, like, you look around the SEC, you look at, like you said, with Musselman, um, you look at Nate Oates, you look at Bruce Pearl, you look at uh, Buzz Williams, um, you look at the king of this, John Calipari. Like, the SEC is full of, like, promoters. And I, that is one thing where you look at, like, the difference between those guys and you especially look at the way that, uh, especially with Arkansas and, and Alabama, how they were able to have – uh, such quick kind of transitions and and now you have like especially with Auburn like one of the best fan cultures in the SEC it's kind of has some to, it, it doesn't have everything but has something to do with the fact that their coaches are promoters and then you saw Mike White who uh, unfortunately a couple of years ago just kind of got to the point where he did the exact kind of bare minimum from a media standpoint and that was it and that's where Many media members, um, you know, just stopped making requests because they just knew they would come back empty. They knew it was going to be a no. And that's just where we're at for a couple of years. And it's almost I actually do feel bad for White in the sense that, like, I really do think if he was more out there, people would have had a little bit more sympathy for him. But instead, they saw obviously a product on the floor that they didn't love. And then they didn't really get to see the, you know, the personality. And then, you know, also we, we heard that there was maybe a little bit toxic with some fan bases that were kind of coming at him. But again, I, I think that that probably wouldn't have been as, as, as bad if, if some of these guys, you know, got to see the personality of, of Mike White. So just again, especially with all these other teams in the sec, not all of them, most of them having like promoters as head coaches. I don't, I don't think that Todd gold needs to be like, Bruce Pearl, but and we could even talk, you know, differently. Like I've been a fan of Todd Golden for years because I am a coaching nerd who takes in every coaching clinic I possibly can with especially an emphasis on analytics. So long before Todd Golden was hired at Florida, I've already watched six or seven, you know, presentations he's done. Um, on whether it be coaching or analytics because he's kind of in those communities. And again, that's very different than like uh, the Bruce Pearl or like Eric Musselman taking his shirt off or whatever like that. It's a different way. And and again, Todd Golden's way is, is getting you into, the, you know, the uh, definitely building the relationship with like coaches who consume that kind of content. But again, I just, right. I see that he was willing to go out and about to do those kinds of things and coaches clinics. Um, it makes me think he'll be more than happy to, you know, go talk to the Gator Club in Miami or, um, or, or the Atlanta Gator Club, stuff like that. I, I think he'd be, you know, happy and, and willing to do that. And not that I think he's going to be on social media all the time, but I think, you know, if he'll be on it a little bit more than, you know, Coach White, who wasn't. And I, I, I just think like, like, like you said, it, it's like there's there's definitely a bunch of fans that are we're super ready for change and are really willing to get behind the new guy 
even like they don't need to know anything. They know, hey, you're a Gator. You committed to the Gators. We love the Gators. Like you're our guy until, you know, proven, proven otherwise. I think there's some fans like that. That would be nice if like you took them from just being like interested in in the new guy to just like, you know, Todd Golden, like really winning them over. And, and I think he's going to be willing to do that. Yeah, no, I just think it's important. Um, like I said, the hire itself will create some energy. I mean, even when Georgia hired Tom Crean, they sold out every home game. Um, so, you know, I can't imagine that Florida will not have some energy in the building next year just because it's a new era. Um, but, you know, sustaining that and building momentum with it is is also a huge part of that battle. And you look at especially a program like both Alabama and Arkansas, there were there were bumps in the transition, but uh, they were able to sustain that energy because they got their faces out there and then they hit the recruiting trail hard. And I think, um, you know, those are just the key steps for Todd. As far as the Gators go, we're going to kick off our season review shows uh, with our next podcast. I will say I don't have much to say about the Xavier game. Um, I didn't think Florida played. I thought a team that has played hard all year didn't play particularly hard, uh, quite honestly. <laughs> Um, they didn't seem terribly interested uh, in playing hard. I say they because it's a team sport. Um, I thought there were individuals that played pretty hard. I thought, uh, in fact, the young players played pretty hard. I thought Tyree Appleby, who always plays hard, played pretty hard. Um, but there were other guys who who kind of made focus errors defensively, Colin Castleton included, um, kind of uncharacteristic for him. Um, and I just didn't think the Gators played very hard. They certainly didn't play very well. They didn't play very smart. Um, they got absolutely physically manhandled on the glass, which I suppose uh, we should have expected. Um, but I didn't necessarily expect against the Xavier team that hadn't really done that to a ton of people. Um, and uh, they didn't guard Nate Johnson, who's like the one guy Xavier has that you want to guard. So lots of things went wrong, and Florida gets kind of blown out after um, – fighting back to, to make it a game at halftime. Um, not much else for me to say about the NIT. I don't know if Eric has anything. Uh, yeah, it was just one of those situations where it was like poor Colin Castleton. Like that was Florida's kind of only offensive plan was to throw it into Castleton. Um, it was almost comical how much pressure Xavier was putting on either the initial pass or if he was somehow able to get the ball, how they would swarm him. And I just didn't think Florida had a game plan for what happened. And that's been the story going back to Kerry Blackshear um, playing through the playing through the post and just like not having a plan for what happened, not getting those players, the ball in good position, not being ready for when double teams come. Um, of course, this team just really lacks shooting. So that makes it even harder. But um, it, there was times where, you know, I thought that Colin Castleton played hard at, at first and then um, – just got, got a little bit exasperated by the fact that he was just getting triple teamed and there was just nothing really to support him from a schematic or floor spacing standpoint. So thought that, that was a pretty frustrating game for him. Kind of sad that that'll be potentially his last kind of experience playing college basketball um, for the Gators. Um, you know, I thought Kwesi Reeves was, was, was playing angry <laughs> and I thought he played well, but there's just like a little bit of a look to his game that, that just like, yeah. there's a little bit more to more of an edge. Um, this is, you know, three straight games for, for, for Kwesi playing really well going from uh, obviously the SEC tournament to uh, these two, two NIT games. I thought he was really good. Um, reiterates how bad the, uh, everyone's going to want him to return um, for sure. But uh, yeah, just a team that I think ran out of gas um, potentially, first emotionally 
maybe second uh, physically. Um, and then, um, hey, shout out to Xavier, who really had a really good home home crowd. Um, yeah. With, you know, their, sure. their coach fired. They're not happy a couple of years, three years in a row, I think, for them without an NCAA tournament. And their expectations are certainly higher there. And I think they should be. Um, and uh, they, they, they packed the place and were loud. So I think that also for the Gators, who are maybe feeling a little bit done with the season, maybe feeling out of gas emotionally, and then you're playing in front of a really, you know, really good home crowd on the road. It was just a recipe for, for, you know, getting blown out. And uh, I don't think anyone's too surprised with the outcome. Um, sadly. No, I didn't. I mean, I didn't expect Florida to win. Um, great point by Eric there that, you know, interestingly, like Florida, so Florida plays Iona and kind of has that inspired second half um, after Mike White leaves. Uh, but, but um, there's the quote mutual parting ways with, with Travis Steele, which was really Travis Steele getting fired. Um, and this was Xavier's first game, uh, where the Iona game was Florida's first game. So this was Xavier's first game in the post-steel era. I'm sure they were emotional and and uh, certainly prideful and, and proud and ready to go. And, and you know, they just really took it to Florida in the second half. I think Gators, uh, as Eric said, ran out of gas. So the season ends with Florida 20 and 14. Uh, no Madison Square Garden uh, trip. But fortunately for all of us, no more NIT broadcast where – when they don't know what to say, they fill the space with, hey, these guys really want to be here. You got to respect the effort because um, I just wasn't going to be able to deal with any more of that from, from announcers. Uh, so we will be back with season in review. Uh, we will review the performances of every player uh, on the season as we did last year. Um, but we will start with the players who um, will cert. Well, I can't with the portal. We can't say certainly be returning. We'll start with the people who aren't seniors. Eligible to return. <laughs> the non-seniors eligible to return because the COVID year always messes me up. But go Gators. Keep attacking closeouts.